All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everybody. You may have noticed there's a little, not a trick, it's a special treat for Note to Self listeners. A bonus episode this week. It is with MIT professor, researcher, psychologist, sociologist, all-around smart, awesome woman, Sherry Turkle. Enjoy. MIT professor Sherry Turkle describes herself as a student of conversation, a trained sociologist, teacher, and clinical psychologist. Her previous book, Alone Together, topped the New York Times bestseller list, and her new book is called Reclaiming Conversation. Numerous Note to Self listeners have requested to hear her on the show, and so I am so pleased to be able to welcome her here today. I'm delighted to be here. Conversation with Reclaiming Conversation authors. (laughs) Exciting. So you definitely think that we the way that we interact with our technology changes the way that we interact with one another in person. And one of if I just may read to you, you say if we outsource all of our emotional conversations to technology, we lose out on empathy. Yeah. What what happens exactly? Yeah. I mean, there's a very significant study that shows that if I put I mean, there's several studies here, but let me just cite a couple. If I put a phone We're sitting face-to-face now. If I put a phone on the table between us, the quality of our conversation changes. It deteriorates. Plus, you and I will feel less emotional connection to each other. And this study was then redone with not putting a phone on the table between us, Mm. but putting a phone on the periphery of our vision. So that even a silent phone disconnects us. So that's the first study that really Mm -hmm. shows that if you want to have a conversation with someone, keep your phone out of sight. Because really what the phone is saying is that this conversation could be interrupted. Mm -hmm. And it just makes common sense that if, if you're thinking you could be interrupted, it's not the moment that you're going to share something really intimate. So these are the kind of issues where empathy or a feeling of connection or a feeling that these conversations are consequential start to get eroded. Reading your book brought up so many of the issues and feelings that our listeners tell us about um, a lot. And so we want to pose some of their very specific questions to you to see if you can maybe help them figure out some concrete steps that they can take as they sort of navigate this relationship with their devices and their uh, real-life relationships as well, online and off. So I want to start with a listener named Luther Light. He is in New Mexico. My name is Luther. For me, a smartphone is a little electronic toolbox. For my wife of 20 years, her smartphone is a new and shiny companion 
I often refer to her phone as the third member of our marriage and to myself as an unwilling e-polygamist. I wonder how other couples are dealing with this transition to the smartphone age. Now, you've done a lot of research on this. So what should Luther say to his wife? What can he say without being a nag? I think that if you begin from a place of, I love you. Can't go wrong. Most people melt a little and... You know, Luther sounds to me like somebody who really wants to connect with his wife. And he does, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah. So, All right, Luther, go, <laughs> go get you her. Know, go get her, yeah. I mean, he's not a nag. He's saying – and also making the point that she doesn't have to give up her phone. Right. She just needs to sometimes put away the phone when she is face-to-face with Luther. I mean, I think that what she does with her phone when she's not with Luther would not upset Luther. I really think the issue for all of us is that when we're with each other, we need to give each other attention. There's a very famous set of experiments called the still face experiment where mothers are asked to be with their kids and just have a still and passive face. And in fact, if a mother does that to their child— the children go crazy. Mm. First, they do everything to get the mother's attention. They're jumping and they're screaming and they're, you know, then they try to be sweet, then they try to be angry, then they start to cry. And ultimately, the child becomes completely impassive, like almost like loses all body posture, mm-hmm. becomes so depressed. It's crazy making. We basically can't tolerate, even as adults, someone who we're trying to relate to, showing so little empathy with our trying to connect with them. And we're doing that to each other now all the time. And we're saying, hey, that's okay. That's our new social norm. Time to revisit. Well, that sets up our next listener's question very nicely. We hear a lot from people who they know that their phone habits are a problem, but They happen to also work in technology. So this is John Olds. He is actually a social media manager. And here's his question. What is the best way for social media managers to kind of navigate their life at work and at home? I have a young son and I've been a social media manager now for two years. And I think if you're a young 20-something-year-old, you can kind of devote 24 hours a day to your social media post and checking everything and notifications. But now with a young son, I find myself having a tough time with my wife and also with my son so that he doesn't see me all the time with my phone in my hand checking messages. So I think an interesting podcast would be how do social media managers navigate their notifications and how that life balance because their job essentially is to always be connected and how do we disconnect and what types of life hacks could really help their job. I'm thinking because I think that this is a listener who has so adequately defined his problem Hmm. and I think that what's missing here is his making the next step which I think he's made, and somehow by calling it a life hack, it's like, shazam, I should have, I should have a way to 
make his problem go away instead of what he knows is the answer is that when he's with his child, he has to put away his phone. And we have to redefine being a social media manager to include some time away from your phone. And this has to do with kind of redefining the nature of our work, that that is a job that the way he defines it would be incompatible with having a child. I mean, I think that makes total sense just because, yes, most social media managers are probably millennials and younger. Guess what? We all get older. We all start to have families, children or parents that we have to care yeah. for. Life, like he's saying, you know, it, is it the maturation of technology that we're seeing that people like John, like, you know, this no, is what I, happens. I think it's. I think it's our maturing with the technology to see that we got into ways of using the technology that don't fit human, human life. life. I mean, you know, I, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, so that's not a problem because actually when we first got cars, we didn't put seat belts on them and we didn't have speed limits and we didn't do a lot of things that we learned to do. That and, goes back to resiliency that you talk yeah, about. Yeah, and, and also maturation. Yeah. And now that we had this new technology and we were experimenting and we were in love with it, and why not? Because it's unbelievably fantastic. And now that we've had, hey, more experience, we say, you know what? When you're with your kid, you really shouldn't be sharing your attention between your child and the phone. So I need to take some time off from my technology when I'm with my child. And that's just something I've learned as I've learned more about the technology and about what it does to a child to be attention sharing with the technology. John, here's my life hack. John, go find someone at work who also has a kid and you can cover for each other. Or if they don't have children, you'll buy, you'll, you can give them beer money to cover for you one hour a night or something. Excellent. Maybe. I mean, all kinds of things, <laughs> you know. But, you know, there, companies are also realizing this. There was a company that um, began a, a project where you had to take what's called predictable time off. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Boston Global Consulting. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you just had to take time off one night a week where you – I think it began with one night a week where you weren't on email that night. Yeah. And it turned out that if you combined that predictable time off with a group, kind of a support group in which you discussed it and things that were happening in your group, people did really better. We actually have an episode on that, John. You can go back and listen Okay. To These are um, great questions. They're good, aren't they? Also, they're great because I know the answers to that. Oh, well, <laughs> you are the expert. So I just want to go for our last question. We've talked about this a lot in this conversation, but your new book was inspired by research that you've been doing on children, young adults. And there is a lot of anxiety, especially among us parents, about how technology is going to affect the next generation. And we got a letter from a listener named Brian Emerson, and he writes – we honestly believe that children are missing out on the physical experiences of playing, wandering, and learning in these very de developmental stages. But will they feel the same way? And I guess what I think Brian is asking is, will they miss something that they don't even know or can't imagine? Are we really messing this generation up? Like looking in the crystal ball, what could the longer term consequences truly be? I don't think we're going to mess them up because I think we're going to make the course corrections. I think that if we start to see a big leap 
in cases of autism, in cases of developmental arrest, in cases of, you know, I talk about a lack of empathy, but, you know, what that translates into if it really is left unchecked is kids who really can't relate to each other. If 10 years from now we're seeing really distressing, disturbing things, I'm putting my money on our making the course corrections. And we can because we have everything we need to begin. We have each other. We can talk to each other. You know, I talk about conversation as the talking cure, and I mean it. We don't need to invent a technology to make this right. <laughs> There's not an app for that? There's not an app for this. You know, what I'm talking about is something that human beings know how to do. We know how to make eye contact. We know how to empathize with each other. We know how to take a walk in the woods. We know how to look at children. We've kind of forgotten something basic, and it's not so far along that we can't make it right. You know, I come to this having seen something that I think is amiss, yeah. thinking it's not too late, and thinking there are signs that people are ready to have a conversation about this. And just to put that in perspective, as someone who's been researching society and technology for decades, the iPhone came out in 2007. So it's eight years. We were in this period where everyone was pretty psyched about everything, feeling pretty high. And now I think what you're saying, this course correction, looks like it is upon us. Is that a long amount of time for a course correction? Is that a very short amount of time? Well, I think in this area, time is condensed. I mean, you began by talking about acceleration. I wrote a book in 2011, Alone Together, which basically described this new psychic phenomenon of how you feel when you're alone together. And the book was very well received, but a lot of people were angry at me for like— Why? They— it was like I was messing up the party. Do you think if you release that book now, it would be received differently? I think people are much more willing to have the conversation. I see much more things in the culture that that kind of agree with me. I'm very happy to hear that because I think that that's where the success of the show has come from. People, like you said, they want yeah. to talk about this. They want to get more knowledge. They want to understand it so that they can make better choices. Yes, I think the Boredom Brilliant Project was absolutely, for me, a harbinger of, of where we're going. Because as I read the results, your write-up of the results of that project, I mean, what you said is the greatest result was not so much behavior change, but people feeling that they had a way to reflect on their own behavior, on what they were doing. It was kind of a, a mirror of their own behavior. And that's where I think we're at. We want, we want to start to have the conversation, reflect on our own behavior, and find ways forward. I cannot thank you enough. Sherry Turkle is a professor, researcher at MIT. Her latest book is called Reclaiming Conversation. She has been very generous with having a very long conversation with me, and I have enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you. Great pleasure. 